Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Words of Whiskey, Words on Whiskey, episode eight and twenty second of July, twenty twenty. Hope you're all keeping well, and thank you all very much for your feedback from the last uh, last episode with John Teeling. Uh, just to start off with uh, some news that we have for the week. I think the only news that we have really this week is that Belfast Whiskey Week is starting this Friday. Uh, there are still some tickets left for the events after Tuesday. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday and Monday are sold out. But there is availability for some of the other events. It promises to be a, a really cracking event. So other than that, uh, I'm delighted to announce that we have Mr. Mark Gillespie with us from Whiskey Cast, And he's joining us from the US. So let's all welcome Mark. Mark, good evening. Good evening. How are you tonight? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And, of course, you're a good few hours behind us now. So what time is it there? It is 2.30 in the afternoon on a very hot, very muggy afternoon. Oh, Otherwise, nice we're putting the webcam outside today. Yeah, well, we don't quite have that weather. I'm looking out the window here, and it's not exactly spitting sun, but nothing new for here. Nothing new for here. So where where in the States are you based, Mark? About uh, 10 miles or so outside of Philadelphia in uh, the southern New Jersey town of uh, Haddonfield, New Jersey, or as mm -hmm. uh, we like to refer to it on the show, the charming yet regrettably dry town of Haddonfield. Dry sounds good. Well, dry depends on what's in what sense. Is it a dry state? No, it's a dry town um, in that no liquor is sold here. They did recently allow a brew pub to open up uh, a year or so ago, and there is uh, a little bit of wine sold here, but no no liquor. Um, essentially, New Jersey, after Prohibition ended, allowed every local government to decide for itself whether it would allow liquor sales or not. And uh, Haddonfield had not sold liquor in the 50 years or so before Prohibition and kept that up until the state basically forced wine sales on them several years ago. Okay. I've got pubs within walking distance. Oh, well, that's because good. I live on the edge of town and every other town surrounding us has sales. And I've got, oh, probably at least five pubs and at least two liquor stores within walking distance. Okay. So you have no problem getting Irish whiskey either. Oh, no problem getting it. It's perfectly, perfectly legal to have. Yeah. It's just that they don't sell it here. Okay. Could you explain for those of us that don't understand the complex tier system in the U.S. for distribution of alcohol and sale of alcohol? Well, if you wanted to design the dumbest and most complex system for handling alcohol distribution, you'd look at the U.S. system and, and basically say, no, that's too stupid. <laughs> Essentially, after before prohibition, yeah. uh, there were very few limits. Uh, liquor, and, liquor, store, liquor companies and breweries could actually own their own pubs and frequently did. Right. Just like they do in uh, Europe today, to this day, still leasing pubs out. That's common and here, were, yes. They were commonly known as tied houses. Essentially, you'd have a bar that sold only one brewer's beers, for instance. Okay. Uh, for instance, Guinness might own uh, pubs in the U.S. that only sold Guinness products mm -hmm. and things like that. Well, after Prohibition ended it was determined that that was really probably a way to abuse the system. So they created a three-tier system. Tier one is the makers or the the importers of okay. imported liquors and spirits and wines. 
or those who make them domestically. They don't get to have a say generally under most rules in tier two, the wholesalers in each region. Right. For instance, let's take Jameson. Uh, Jameson is owned by Irish distillers Pernod Ricard. Well, their U.S. importer is Pernod Ricard USA, their wholly owned subsidiary in the U.S. Okay. But Pernod Ricard USA then has to contract with regional distributors that are separately owned that have exclusive rights to distribute that product, that Jameson whiskey in a state okay. or in a part of a state. For instance, uh, New York, there might be one distributor that handles, and I'm using this as a hypothetical, there might be one distributor that handles just New York City and then one that handles upstate and the rest of the state of New York. And is it always one? Yeah, one generally it's exclusive to one region. Okay. And then that distributor then deals with the retailers mm -hmm. and both the stores and the bar and restaurant accounts. Okay. That way there's a separation in most states, the manufacturers or the importers can say or set a recommended price, but they can't enforce it. Okay. So, so is that, there multi-levels? Increase accountability. That way you have the local retailers and bars and restaurants are more accountable to local politicians and local governments if they okay. screw up. All right. So I know it's one of the big challenges that the Irish distributors or Irish manufacturers have here is actually getting into the markets in the U.S. through that three-tier system. Uh, it proves expensive, and I think it proves complicated legally as well for them. Yeah, because you can decide, you, you get to, if you're, if I'm, say, importing Mark's Irish whiskey, yeah, or may, if I create Mark's Irish whiskey brand, I can hire an importer to be my U.S. importer. Then it's on them to go out and find the regional distributors. And then those folks have to have the incentive to actually go out and put your stuff out into the market okay. and get it on four shelves. And everybody wants the uh, maker to help fund that. With uh, So in essence, I'd have to pay my importer, give them a certain allowance for marketing expenses. They pass that on to the distributors so that I'm absorbing some of those costs. Okay. Yeah, uh, a nightmare, a nightmare. I don't think it's uh, anywhere that complicated. As, matter of fact, it makes there. me want to have a drink right now. Well, what are you? What are you drinking, actually? Um, actually, I was drinking water just because it's about ninety degrees Fahrenheit here. Oh, but uh, I have my handy dandy to a glass, and uh, since we were talking about Jameson, I have some of the triple triple duty free. Oh, yes. It was done in the Malaga wine casks, and. My little sticking point, I picked this up when I was in New Zealand, and the cap is not exactly well sealed. Ooh. I've been trying to finish this thing off before it oxidizes. Is that an odd, an odd bottle, or is that the general? Um, it's the screw cap. That's This is the one-liter uh, travel retail bottle. Okay, yeah. And I didn't have a cork that fits, so... Slauncher, Sergio, it's good to talk Slauncher, to you. I'm going to have... Um... A sample here. I got a sample of this Liberator with the port finish. So, um, I've not tried that one. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one. It's certainly, I've taken a strong liking to the port recently. So, anyway, Slauncha, thank you for coming. And actually, you have a celebration this year, of course, as well. Ten years of whiskey cast. Um, actually, fifteen. Ten years. Fifteen from the rest. Ah, okay. Redrest, I, we announced this the other day, and that may be where you got the confusion. Yes. Redrest came on board in 2011. They're starting their 10th year with us. Right. So 15 uh, years, even more so of an achievement. 
15 years, November 12th will be our 15th anniversary. Fantastic. That's a, quite a phenomenal for any business for a start to be going 15 years, never mind in the in this space as well. How did how did you get interested in whiskey first? Presumably you had a strong interest before you started podcasting and the show. Well, basically it started in 1997. Uh, I was living in Anchorage, Alaska and working as a reporter at the time. And I had to go down to Sarasota, Florida. Uh, my grandmother had passed away. She lived down there and I was her oldest living relative. So I wound up having to go down and take care of the estate. Okay. There is a pub down there or a restaurant and bar known as Michael's on East. Uh, it was the home of the Whiskey Obsession Festival for several years until this year. And they had a satellite location that was right across the street from the hospital. It was called the Tasting Room. And it was uh, a nice little wine bar, dessert bar, high-end spirits, and in one half. And then the other half, you could go through the doorway and walk into the retail shop. So if you found, say, a wine or a spirit that you liked in the bar section, you could go across into the retail section and buy it. Okay. And I was hanging out there because they had good cold beer, the air conditioning was good, and the crowd was nice. I walked in one night, and they had a sign-up that they were doing a flight of single malt scotches for, I think, 15 bucks. And up to that point, my only experience with whiskey had been, like most of us, doing shots in college, getting sick and saying, we're never touching that stuff again. Yep. But by this time, I was older, more responsible, theoretically. Um, and said, okay, let me see if I can learn to like this. So I sit down at the bar, put my card on the debit card on the counter and tell the bartender, okay, let's try that flight and teach me what you know. He pours four single malts. I forget. I don't even remember what they were, Yeah, but they were from four different regions of Scotland. And I started nosing them and sipping them and going, wow, I can like this. And I could pick up the differences immediately. Mm -hmm. And it sort of went downhill from there. Oh, I don't think so. But yeah, interesting. I mean, $15 now, you'd be looking to get a, a dram. Yeah. And from, from that point, obviously, you have the journalism background, which is a, a huge thing. And, you know, many of us come into podcasting don't have that background. Um, so how big a significance is having that background? It was significant for me because it made life a lot easier. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason I started Whiskey Cast in the first place was because I was working for a company at the time in 2005 where I was producing all of our broadcast news content for CNN and other folks and uh, a radio series and things like that yeah. and running a studio in central New Jersey. And this was in the time when Apple had just introduced podcast support into iPods. Yeah. And the powers that be in the company thought that maybe we should explore podcasting. And I thought, great idea. But I said, hang on a second. I'm the poor guy that's going to have to make this thing work. So let me go play for a little bit, test it out, figure out how it's going to impact our workflow, what we have to do to make this thing work. And I'll come back to you. And I decided, I, sort of knocked around the idea of podcasting about whiskeys 
and then used that as the test, used whiskey as the test bed to test this whole thing out. I took my uh, audio gear out to a couple of whiskey festivals, did some interviews, came back, recorded a few episodes, put them out on the web, and people liked them. Uh, yeah. That year, I had asked on the whiskey magazine message boards of the time, if I produced a whiskey podcast, would you guys listen? There were 17 responses. One said yes, two said maybe, and the other 14 said, what's a podcast? Exactly, yeah. So after I produced the first episodes and then told everybody, hey, go, go listen to this, tell me what you think. And they go, oh, that's what you meant by a podcast. Yeah, we'd listen. I go back and tell the guys at the office, yeah, we can do this. Here's what we have to do. Here's what we're going to have to do here in, the, in our office in the studio. Here's what our IT guys back in the Midwest are going to have to do to get on the website and stuff like that. Yeah. And once again, it went downhill from there. Six months later, they stopped producing the TV content for CNN. They closed my studio, move it to Washington, lay me off, hire a kid at a third of my salary to produce the podcasts. Okay. I kept producing the podcast and... Uh, after my next layoff three years later during the peak of the financial crisis, after I landed a business news network job in New York and then got laid off during the financial crisis, uh, ever since then, this has been a full-time job. Oh, I mean, you must be one of the very few. I mean, I, I, I don't know of any other podcasts that are certainly running as long as yourself. Was there anything out there at the time that you started? There was one called Radio Whiskey, where it was a, a guy, and I, I have forgotten his name, and I know I shouldn't have, but I have forgotten his name. And he had done just a few episodes where he was telling stories with whiskey in them. He wasn't doing a whiskey podcast like we were. Mm -hmm. And he stopped shortly after I did. Then the Scotch cast came along um, a year, a couple of years after I got started. They wound up folding after several years. And then in the last uh, two to three years, it has sort of exploded with uh, as people become more accustomed to the idea of, that anybody can create a podcast. Yeah, We've had a lot of them pop up. And uh, my take on it is that a rising tide lifts all boats. I'm more than happy to yeah, see well, podcasts out there. I mean, that's one of the things that comes across, actually, is that uh, you're very generous with your time and, and welcoming of new podcasts. and uh, So there's not a competitive nature in there. Um, but your podcast is the yardstick by which the others are measured, for sure. And I'm not just saying that uh, to blow air. But you, you, there's no gimmicks in your podcast. There's straight talking. There's interesting people. There's good conversation. There's no bells and whistles. It's a very down-to-earth, approachable podcast. What do you think has been the secret to your longevity and the success that you've had with WhiskeyCast? combination of passion, authenticity, and ethical standards, yeah. frankly, and the support of our audience. Because uh, everything that goes into Whiskey Cast, I put my hands on. Yeah. In one way or the other, I'm touching it. Uh, you know it's coming through me. I'm either doing the interviews um, or doing the editing or writing the stories. And you know where I come from on the ethical side. None of our sponsors have ever had a say in editorial content and never will. That's the first thing they learn when they start talking to us about coming on board as an advertiser. Sure. That uh, 
we tell them, you will never get a say. You can suggest stuff, but it's our decision. Or more specifically, my decision on whether it goes on the show or not. Now, we're always looking for content, so we love suggestions from them. But it, sometimes we say no. Sometimes we don't report, say, somebody's contest results, or we don't report. Uh, we, we, there are things we don't report on just because they don't really mean that much to the audience. Yeah. We have lost money. We have lost sponsors because of coverage or refusal to cover things. Uh, we lost one advertiser several years ago because they wanted to change their model after working with us for a while to where they only paid us when we talked about their products. Yeah. That doesn't fly. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've come across that sort of scenario, you know, from our side as well. Right. Uh, and it's a, it's a dangerous game to play, to be pandering to the advertisers as well. But I think that's where your integrity. And one thing I know, I was on your website earlier, just doing some background research. I really like the fact that you do have your ethical uh, guidelines made available. So it, it's very transparent to everybody where everything lies and where you lie. Uh, and I think that's something a lot of people can learn from. Well, well because it comes out of being a journalist yeah. for a really long time now. Um, it would have been easy if uh, it would be easy just to sell out. Mm -hmm. But that's not what I've ever done in four decades of working as a journalist. Yeah. And we're not going to do that now because the audience knows that if we get sponsorship from a from a brand, you know it. It's yeah. transparent. We acknowledge it. We embrace it and we tell them, "Hey, yeah, they're a sponsor and we're proud they're a sponsor." But we're not going to do anything. We're not going to do any favors for them. You're not going to see me uh score somebody's whiskey higher. Yeah. For instance, if I'm drinking Jameson right now, and yes, it's part of the IDL family, but my folks, my friends on the Redbreast team are not going to complain because I was drinking a Jameson during this podcast instead of a Redbreast. Yeah. Well, that's and where your reputation is Or gone. something else. They'd be fine with that. Yeah. I mean, it, it is one of the obstacles that I think people have to make a decision on from the very beginning where they lie with all this sort of thing. Uh, so, journalistic integrity obviously is crucial. It's one of the big, big factors of your success. You also are, are, are born with a golden voice, or were you born with it, or did you train it? You're not going to believe this, but it is completely natural. It is. Um, from the time I was a teenager, I had this, I, I was blessed with this voice. It's booming. It's loud. It worked really well in high school drama productions because uh, I was the only one they didn't have to tell to project to the back of the auditorium because I could hit it. Yeah. And while I can't sing to save my soul, I've been blessed with a good speaking voice. My father uh, basically said when I was a teenager that I was going to make a living with my mouth and I found the one legal way I could do it. Yeah, well, I mean, you kind of remind me of the Casey Kasem voice of whiskey. Uh, that, and that's, I think, a, a compliment. That is a but, compliment. But um, how do you feel about the emergence of all these podcasts? Uh, obviously, some of them are better than others. Um, but is it more competitive? Is it, like you say, a rising 
tide lifts all boats. How do you feel about them? I think a rising tide does lift all boats because you're not, if you're listening, if you want to listen to a podcast with a couple of guys in the basement shooting the breeze as they're sipping whiskeys, yeah. that's not what whiskey cast is. But if it gets, if that podcast gets you to listen to a whiskey podcast and you want to learn more and then you decide, well, let's see what else is out there. And you come and discover whiskey cast as a result. I'm fine with that. Yeah. Just as if you listen to us and you want to find out what else is out there and you decide you like also hearing from guys who sit in their basement talking about whiskey. That's cool. Yeah. There is enough out there that there's enough of an audience out there for all of us. Yeah. Um, but you haven't changed. Um, I, I wouldn't say you've changed your style of, of uh, broadcast that much. I mean, you introduced new technology and new features. Certainly there's the tastings element and, and there's the whiskey cast HD, which I, I've been following lately as well, which are great. Um, do you think that there are any new emerging technologies that you'd like to get involved in and see how things go or have you have future plans? We're always looking at stuff because uh, my business partner, Christina, handles uh, all of the new development and the business development stuff. And we tried an app out several years ago and it, it worked until the software changed and evolved. And we it would have cost us far more to update the app with, to new software than it was to uh, develop it in the first place. Yeah. And we didn't do that. That's one thing we're looking at. We, we look at other ideas, um, but I think we want to focus right now on what we're doing best, which is the weekly podcast and the two live webcasts we do each week. That's where if I want to focus my attention on because I have enough trouble just getting guests and getting keeping all those produced. during. The oh, I think you, you, you get lots of guests, no problem. But, um, it, the one challenge that I that I see in terms of the, of the podcast is how do you reinvent stories? So, I mean, what makes a podcast interesting? What, what is the, the, you know, if there were three elements that make a podcast interesting or enjoyable, what would you say they are? Great storytelling is the key. Yeah. Good interviews. I mean, I try to mix it up so that we're not doing the same thing every week. Mm -hmm. I want you to hear from somebody who's doing bourbons one week. I want you to, then I want to talk to somebody who's doing Irish whiskey or somebody who's writing a book or somebody who's building a distillery or a bar. Yeah. I want to keep it fresh and keep it interesting. Yeah. The, in our in-depth segment, in our main interviews, I'm trying to present information that you might not get anywhere else about whiskey but I want to keep you coming back because if I can keep you, if I can get you to listen to one or two episodes, I can get you hooked. I hope. I mean, it's not, it's more about the storytelling than it is about me. I want to be able to tell a great story. I want the people who are being interviewed to really be able to tell their stories. Yeah. I'll let them ramble for a couple of minutes rather than cut them down to a 30 second soundbite. That's why some of our feature interviews run 20, 25 minutes because I want them to tell the story in their words rather than yeah. telling it for them. Yeah, there's an authenticity there, certainly, in somebody telling their own story and they're uninhibited in what they're they're told. How has the um, impact of social media played on you? 
I think it's it's really what saved us in a lot of ways because okay. very early on we didn't get a lot of feedback. Mm. I'd get the would put the email address out on the early podcasts, and I'd get an email every once in a while, but social media lets people respond to you pretty much instantly. And it requires that, uh, as a result, I have to be on social media pretty much every day to respond. And It's a full-time job. For a day or two. Yeah. I mean, do you find that it takes up too much of your time? It can. There are nights when I will be sitting in my office on social media and going, you know, I really probably should be doing something different right now, but I'm having too much fun. Yeah. Then there'll be times when I'll cross the line with a response or something. And uh, I will hear from upstairs, take that comment down now because you crossed the line with it. Okay. Um, I try to respond. I try to respond positively to everyone. Yeah. And try, at least in my whiskey commentary, and try not to be too snarky. Yeah. And because. There are no dumb questions out there and there are, and everyone has a valid opinion. And who am I to tell somebody that they're dead wrong about something unless they've got a fact wrong? Yeah. I mean, I don't know everything there is to know about whiskey and I've been covering it for 15 years. So I'm learning something too. And I I try to be good and polite and generous with my time, but every once in a while you get the urge to just let somebody have it. Yeah. No, I can I can understand that. I, how did you um, realize, or when did you realize that you were onto something that potentially had a full time career? I mean, did you start full time career in the whiskey cast immediately, or? Oh no, no, no. Um, as I said, I got laid off about six months after starting the show. Yeah, I was producing the podcast while looking for a full time job. Took a couple of months, but I got the full-time job in New York. Stayed there three years, got laid off. Mm-hmm. Kept producing the show. We had a little bit of advertising income at the time. And as the severance ran out several months later, mm-hmm. and I'd had one job interview in a year. Keep in mind the 2008, 2009, 2010 time period. During the financial crisis, we lost 100,000 media jobs in the United States. Among all the layoffs, uh, stations closing, newspapers closing, things like that. I had one job interview, and they didn't call me back for the second one. Yeah. So after, as the severance was running out, and I was trying to do everything myself, my wife, Christina... And our three daughters, Brianna, Aria, and Tessa, sat me down for what some might call an intervention, or in other words, a come-to-Jesus meeting. And they said, hey, you know, this podcast thing is fun, and you're having fun with it, and you're doing good work with it. But you stink when it comes to ad sales, and you're not the business person in this. Mom's the business person. Her background's in small business consulting, marketing, sales, PR work. She's got all those strengths that, frankly, you don't have. You produce great content, but you can't sell to save your butt. So you have a choice. You can either turn over the business side to Christina and let her manage it and keep producing the show, or 
you're going to have to ch- cancel, get rid of the show and go find a full-time job at a grocery store or something to support this family. Okay. I'm not stupid. <laughs> All evidence to the contrary, I am not a stupid person. So I said, okay, let's turn it over and let you run with it. Yeah. Well, in the first few months after that, she did the Red Breast deal changed around the media kit, changed the way we sell the advertising, and did all the things that I didn't know how to do. Yeah. And she saved it. And that's why it, how it was the only reason it became a full-time job was because it was out of necessity. Yeah. Was it difficult to let go? Yes. Yeah. That's, that's the thing you learn in business is that sometimes you succeed by letting go of control and giving up control and being willing to give up something and let go of it. Yeah. That old thing, if you love something, let it go, and maybe it'll come back to you. Yeah. Or in this case, I was strangling the bird with both hands. But by letting it go and letting her deal with that, not only did the, the show stay with me, but we were able to make it work. And to this point, 10 years later, um, still in the same house, still with the same family, and it's all worked. Yeah. Pays most of the bills most of the time. And you do what you love doing. And I'm having fun. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, once it stops becoming fun, presumably you'll move and look elsewhere. Well, I don't anticipate it stopping being fun. I mean, we managed to get through this pandemic so far, and this is certainly not fun. Yeah. What's been the impact, actually, on you personally and uh, on the business, on whiskey in in general, the bars and all the rest? We had worked from home for many years Yeah, going into the pandemic. Is In fact, it was only last fall that we uh, took an office just up the street in one of these uh, co-working spaces, mm-hmm. just took a small 10-foot by 12-foot office just to uh, move some of the gear out of my basement studio where I'm at right now and have a place to go do interviews, have a a place to go to that didn't have all the distractions of working from home Sure, because I was working a few hours at a time each day, but working from nine or 10 in the morning until late at night, because I'd get interrupted to feed the dogs, take the dogs out, do stuff like that, do laundry, things like that. Yeah. And not be able to put in a full eight hour day. Well, the pandemic changed that because our office space had to close down. It's we've, we're just now starting to move back there. Yeah. But brought everything back home. And fortunately, because we were used to working from home and I had, equipment already in place, it didn't really have much of an effect. On whiskey, it's had an effect. Sure. We, we did lose a couple of sponsors because of budget cuts. Mm-hmm. We have others coming on board to replace them that we'll be announcing in the next week or two here. But it, uh, yeah, we, we went through a period where it was uh, a bit uncertain. We were a bit yeah. nervous about it, but uh, I think we've gotten past that and I think we'll be fine. So things are improving. In, in terms of the pandemic itself, are things starting to improve or is it still on the increase? Well, I think you're doing a lot better in Ireland than we are in the U.S. Fortunately, yeah. New Jersey is one of the states where we locked things down quickly and severely. And while cases have been rising here recently, slowly, we have not had the spiking cases that other states have had. Yeah. That said, um, I don't see myself traveling. 
very much at all. Yeah, uh, I would have expected you to be in Ireland a couple of times already yeah, this year. I would have been, yeah, I would have certainly been in Ireland by now this year. Yeah. And was supposed to be going over for the whiskey show in London mm -hmm. at the start of October and had hoped to maybe get over for Whiskey Live in Dublin in November, but that's not going to happen, more than likely. I really don't see myself, other than absolute necessity trips, where I have a contract that says I have to be in a specific place to do a specific project, because yeah. we do some outside podcast production as well, that I don't see myself doing any traveling for the rest of this year. Yeah. No, I think likewise here, it's very limited, although... Uh, I think there's been some talk about travel between the U.S. and Ireland, but that has all been tightened up. I haven't been more than 10 miles from home since March 15th, or since oh, wow. March 10th. I have not okay. been more than 10 miles from home since I got back from New Zealand on March 10th. Okay. Well, I have only been allowed into my office officially in the last two weeks, so I have found my way in here, but officially... Two weeks is uh, the time I've been in. Tell me, you you started the whiskey cast. What was the state of whiskey in the U.S. at that point, and what was the state of Irish whiskey when you started? Irish whiskey was had not even started the Renaissance yet. We were starting to get interest in the mid two thousands. In people had started paying attention to bourbon and Scotch again, but uh, and Jameson was still. The, the leading Irish whiskey brand as it is now, but sales were maybe close to a million cases a year in the U.S. They're, I think they're doing three million now, and I could be wrong about that, but that's yeah. just to give you an idea. Irish whiskey had not quite just taken off just yet in 2005, but you were still getting 800, 900 to 1,000 people at Whiskey Fest in New York yeah, in events like that, and people were picking up on it again and starting to pay attention, which is why I thought, maybe a whiskey podcast might work. But since then, it has just exploded. I mean, yeah. at that point, at that point, 2005, you barely had, you had Jameson, you had Bushmills, and a little bit of Redbreast in the U.S. You didn't have all these other little brands. I mean, Cooley, you didn't even have much from Cooley in the States until a couple of years after that. I mean, it was just, it was really hard to find. It wasn't really well known. Yeah. And are the is the consumer aware of these smaller or newer brands, or are they are becoming aware of them? Yeah, um, people are now aware of. I mean, Redbreast has just sort of gone off the charts in terms of awareness. It was yeah. the number two brand at that point. Even Powers is getting attention now, just thanks to that bottle redesign. Yeah, uh, it's just now starting to hit the U.S. But. Uh, you have the Napog Castles of the world. You have the Lambays. You have the Dingles. People are paying attention to these brands. The Teelings have done a great deal of work to help yeah. promote Irish whiskey. Um, it's really been across the board that uh, people are really paying attention to it now and looking for looking for ways to drink it, looking for reasons to try different Irish whiskeys. Yeah. In terms of how Irish whiskey measures against the competition, this is a difficult question, I suppose, but it's so general. But, you know, if you put the Irish whiskey beside the scotches, the bourbons, uh, the ryes and so forth, does Irish whiskey have the same level of respect uh, uh, as the U.S. ones? I'll tell you this much. For the last several years, 
Um, the government and the Distilled Spirits Council here keep track of uh, whiskeys by various regions and where they're coming from mm -hmm. when they're imported. Yeah, Irish whiskey sales have had double-digit growth the last five years in a row, at least. Yeah. It is the fastest-growing segment of the whiskey market. Yeah. It does, just to give you a point, it's been growing. It's about 10 to 11% a year on top of the previous year. So that's, compound, that's not even compounded. That's annual growth year over year. Canadian whiskey only has about 2% growth. Scotch whiskey, single malts are rising. Blends are yeah. dropping a little bit, except in the premium category. And bourbon is rising. I mean, people are going crazy over Irish whiskey in the U.S. It remains the largest Irish whiskey market in the world. Yeah. I think it's the last 12, 15 years that they've been double-digit growth. I think we're up to 5 million cases, if I'm not wrong, in, in Jameson alone. Right. But but uh, in terms of the American whiskey, because you see a lot of revival there. Rye is becoming hugely popular. And I believe the latest trend now in American whiskey is single malts. Yeah, is American that something, right something you're saying? Yeah, American single malts, even though there's no official category for it, there's no official definition. Yeah. Yet. They're trying, the, uh, the American single malt distillers are trying to get the government to create a definition for it. Yeah. Uh, there's what we call in the U.S. standards of identity that lay out what a specific spirit is. Uh, for instance, in the case of Irish whiskey, it's very simple. It's whiskey made in Ireland that conforms to the, or Northern Ireland, that conforms to the standards of the Irish government. Yeah, Ireland is one of the three countries where the U.S. defers to another country on how it define what it chooses to define. Uh, it allows Scotland, Ireland, and Canada okay. to define what those whiskeys from those three countries are, and nobody else gets that. Uh, you don't see that with Indian whiskey. Even the English whiskeys that came over when they started coming in. They were defined, they were having trouble getting defined as single malts, even though they met the standards the UK government had put in place. But yeah. because those standards were put in place for Scotch whiskey, what do you make of these Japanese American single malt yet? What do you make of these Japanese single malt definitions and the standards they have to, you know, there's been a what standards a lot of talk, yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, so I can't wait until the standards that are being proposed actually get some teeth to them because right now, as you alluded to, if I were operating Mark's whiskey company in Tokyo, I could bring basically a tanker of blended scotch over from Scotland yeah, and bring it into Tokyo Harbor, send it straight to a bottling plant and bottle that stuff and label it Japanese yeah. whiskey. And there's nothing to stop me from doing it. And Japanese single malt, you could label it. Distilled or even matured in Japan. Yeah. Well, one question I had actually about the American, the trend now for malts in America, single malts. Uh, can they finish in non-version American casks? They can and do. They can and do. Okay. I was it, looking it, for that definition. They finish in beer casks even. I just tasted yeah. one this week on the show from, or two of them on the show, one from Westland. That was done in an Imperial Stout cask from a Lucky Exchange or Lucky Envelope Brewing in uh, Seattle, and I also tasted a Klonakilty that's coming out in September, where they finished it in beer casks from Twenty Six Degrees Brewing down in Florida, an yeah. IPA cask. Yeah, we tried this uh, the Star Trooper we tried or the Storm Trooper. They they have a series of seven. 
so they've worked with uh, six different breweries, I think, Clonakilty, and released seven different whiskeys. Mm-hmm. So that should be, I think, they're primarily for the U.S. market. So, what, what do you make of the brands that are existing only for U.S. marketing and consumption? So the Irish whiskeys that we find very hard to find here, but there seems to be a whole plethora of them over there, and some of them, obviously, with you know. Dubious Yes. Well, there is that thing that a rising tide lifts all boats. So if somebody <laughs> tries one of those yeah. and likes it, then hopefully they'll try another Irish whiskey that maybe has some more provenance and heritage and like a writer's tears or the Irishman and fall in love with that. Yeah. But it's the other flip side of it as well, isn't there? I'm sorry. So there's the flip side of that argument as well. So that introducing yeah. a couple of bad ones. Yeah, you let a stinker out there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I wouldn't want to cast aspersions, but um, there's a certain whiskey that's named after a postal district in Dublin that I thought could have been one hell of a lot better than it is. Yeah. And I'm just hoping it doesn't turn people off to what Irish whiskey can be. Yeah. Yeah, I think we know which one we're, that one is referring to. I don't want to get punched. No, no, no. Well, look, um, the other thing I wanted to talk about was the impact of bloggers and all this huge amount of information that is available and available immediately. It's available immediately on social media. It's available immediately on uh, blog posts uh, and, of course, on podcasts and, and YouTube. Is the... And I think I mentioned it in your previous uh, HD whiskey cast. The speed and the availability and the emergence of content appearing almost instantaneously has that caused standards to drop? Yeah. Yeah. Everybody wants to be first. Yeah. And unfortunately, not everybody wants to be right first. Yeah. I would rather wait until I have my facts in a row before I publish a story mm-hmm. or report it than just get it out there. Yeah. Because all too often we've learned that uh, people don't always get things right. Um, yeah. And even the press releases that mm-hmm. go out yeah. often will they'll be followed an hour or two later by a revised press release saying, please use this one instead of the one we sent you an hour ago that you may have already reported on. We kind of made a mistake. Yeah. Uh, it, is important to be, it is important to be first. It is important to break news, but it is more important to be right than yeah. to be first. And that's one of the things that drilled into me early in my career is, yeah, you can, you can have something first, but if it's not right, you were wrong first. That's true. That's true. It, it also gives you, I mean, being first doesn't give you a chance to interpret necessarily what is being sent out. And to stand out, I think you, you need to put your own spin in it or your own interpretation on it. Hopefully or a valid interpretation. You have to put it into context. Um, for instance, if... Well, let's take this Johnny Walker paper bottles thing that came out last week. Yeah. What a lot of folks didn't read into the, because they didn't read between the lines is that 
everybody went nuts saying, oh my God, Johnny Walker is going to be in paper bottles next year. Mm -hmm. They're testing it, gang. You didn't read that real well, is that it's a test. And basically, it's more the story of Diageo doing a joint venture for this production bottle production company yeah. backing it. And they're going to use Johnny Walker to prove that it works. But the real money is going to be getting folks like Unilever and PepsiCo, the other two consumer product giants in that news release, getting companies like those on board, because that's where the money is. Yeah. For me, it was more, that story was more a story of the fact that companies are looking at sustainability a bit yeah. more seriously, more than what it was. And they have to, but what people just forgot to mention was it's an experiment. They're testing this technology, one, to see if it works, because yeah. we don't really know until you see it in volume and you do a high, high volume test, whether the stuff they're using to line those things with will actually degrade alcohol or affect the taste yeah. or the long-term shelf life of this product. I mean, I think it would be great for the on-premise trade. If you've got a bar that's going through three or four bottles of Johnny Walker a week, mm -hmm. package, the, package it in these things where they're going to go through it in a day or two and it's not going to sit on a shelf for six months yeah. because then you're going to go through it. You can recycle it. You're not recycling a heavy glass bottle. You're not going to have the carbon impact of shipping said heavy glass bottle from the glass plant to the bottling plant, then on throughout the supply chain and then trying to recycle that glass plant or that glass bottle. If you have a paper-based or pulp-based product that's more easily recycled and weighs a lot less, let's use that for the on-trade stuff and save the glass bottles for the off-premise retail market where a bottle might sit for six months or a year before you finish it. Sure, yeah. Well, going back to the growth of whiskey in the States, I mean, there's over 2,000 distilleries. I could be even far short of that. Um, well, let's, let's, let's clarify that. That was the last count pre-pandemic. We don't know who's coming back after the pandemic. because Well, that's the other thing, yeah. A lot of those distillers, there are a bunch of those guys that may not come back because a lot of them couldn't get PPP loans from the government to sustain their operations and were running on a thin edge to begin with and having to, is nine out of 10 of the craft distilleries or most distilleries in the U.S. make most of their money off their tasting rooms. Sure. And yeah. those guys were Visitor all- Visitor centers. Yeah, because I think the same is true here. You know, there are still many businesses here that are very dependent upon the visitor trade, and, and that's collapsed this year. So let's so we can say yeah, a little over two thousand back in March. We don't know what that number is going to be March of this year or next year. Yeah, how many were there when you started? Maybe a couple of hundred at most. Right. Okay. In wow. two thousand five, you had maybe a hundred craft distilleries. Yeah. I mean, it was, you had places like Charbet in California, St. George Spirits in California, um, Belmont Farm in Virginia, little small places. Uh, that was about the time that Tuttletown may have gotten started around that time in upstate New York. Yeah. But it was very small, very few and far between. And really only in the last, we've got a whole bunch of distilleries now that are celebrating their 10th anniversaries that have become mainstays. Yeah. in the craft filling movement. Yeah. How do you define this craft movement, actually? Because it's something I find difficult to, uh, to accept in one sense. I mean, make saying something is craft doesn't necessarily mean it's good, of course. You no. know, and... Uh, 
There is just as much craft going into, it is hard to do craft at scale. Yeah. It's impossible. It's hard to do it at scale. And the big distilleries that do it well are amazing at it. The term I, when I, if I'm thinking of craft or an artisan distiller, the standard I would use is small scale where the owner is involved in the day-to-day -day production process or yeah. the owner or owners where you've got the people who put up the money for it and are running the place actually working the stills or actually act active in a role within the company, whether they may have hired somebody to, to do their distilling and they're doing the marketing side because that's yeah. where their strengths are. Um, I would not consider a craft distiller to be anything where you can buy shares on the stock market. Yeah. Nothing publicly traded. And I generally set the limit at anybody that pulls out, uh, if you're selling a hundred thousand cases a year, you're probably not a craft distiller. Yeah. But I, I mean, one of the things about the craft distillers is very often they want to be non-craft distillers, you know, <laughs> they want to get I to the stage. Started out as a craft distiller somehow. Yeah. I mean, yeah. when you look at Jameson, it started yeah. with John Jameson in Dublin with his little small still and all these guys, every major distillery today started out usually with, somebody in a farm or in a city buying grain and making whiskey somehow. And they start everybody's today's small guys may be the Jamesons of the future. We don't know, but uh, everybody started out. So everybody sort of has that goal. Yeah. Some people just want to make good whiskey. Yeah. Or some people just want to make whiskey. It may not be great, but they want to make their own. Are there any up and coming U.S. whiskeys that uh, we should look out for? Yeah, there's a bunch of them because a lot of this stuff is really, really good. Um, it's young still in many cases, but I think you're going to see, I mean, it, you're probably familiar in Europe, uh, Westland in yeah. Seattle, exports a lot. Balconis out of Texas. Um, Catoctin Creek in Virginia does some really good rise. And full disclosure, they're one of our sponsors. Mm -hmm. Um one I'm watching in the future is Sagamore Spirit. And yes, they're a sponsor. But here's the thing. All the juice they've released so far has been sourced from MGP. Yeah. They're distilling their own stuff now. And just it's just starting to get old enough Yeah, where they could even release a little bit of it just as sort of a souvenir release. And I think once we see what their spirit, what their mature spirit is going to be like, because they have the investment behind them to actually go big and go global. Because yeah. the distillery was founded by a guy named Kevin Plank, who you probably know better as the uh, guy who founded Under Armour Clothing. Right. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. He's got a boatload of money. Right. Uh, Wyoming Whiskey. Uh, we've been telling that story for years. They make really good bourbon. Yeah. And now that they have Edrington working with them, you're going to see that more in Europe. Uh, there are some really good American single malts out there. There are very good American small-scale distillers out there. Those are just a handful of them. Santa Fe Spirits in New Mexico, uh, Westward slash House Spirits in Portland, Woodenville in Washington State. There are some really good people out there doing really cool stuff. And yeah. I hope you get to try some of it. Well, yeah, I mean, it's obviously there's this tariffs issue, which is a, a big obstacle, I suppose, for a lot of these American small craft distillers. I've got a question here from Connor O'Hare. And it's a valid question here and in stateside, I'd imagine. 
can you see the whiskey becoming a bubble? Oh, yeah. Because whiskey has always been volatile <coughs> in terms of bubbles. We've seen it time and time over the years. The difference this time is that you have easier routes to market in more countries. We now have people in China drinking whiskey. Of course, yeah. we also have distilleries being built in China to supply some of that demand. We have uh, South America, Africa, markets that we didn't always send whiskey to before that are starting to take it seriously and starting to drink it. So I think we have the potential to keep expanding the whiskey market. But as we've learned from this pandemic, anything can happen. Sure. You've got to hedge your bets. I mean, nobody saw this pandemic coming at least in political leadership, the scientists knew it could happen, but I don't think anybody in business really thought, really took it seriously until it got to this point. Yeah. So we, we have to be careful of it, but yeah, it's very possible a bubble could hit. But and it would that bubble be due to people's tastes or fashions or more as a result of stuff like this pandemic? Well, when you have combinations like the pandemic mm. that, hurt the economies and make it harder for people to afford whiskey, or yeah. you have tariffs that raise the price of whiskeys and access to markets and political considerations like that. At that point, it can be a man-made disaster as much as a change of taste disaster. Yeah. Uh, I noted that uh, obviously when, since you started, there must have been very significant changes in the demographics in the styles of whiskey people are choosing to drink, uh, the age group, the profile, how has that changed? And actually, how does that get reflected in your audience as well on your podcast? It has, uh, it has changed. We now have more younger people becoming whiskey connoisseurs and not just doing the shots that I referred to earlier. Sure. There's a difference between the fireball crowd that does the shots at the bar and the young whiskey connoisseurs who are actually taking it seriously. But a lot of these folks are just getting, or a couple of years out of college or university. They've got jobs where they've got incomes that allow them to afford whiskey and they're taking it seriously. Um, we have more women drinking whiskey publicly than ever before. They may have been doing it in private, but yeah. now they're more open about it and they're actually being respected for it. Um, I don't think that changed the taste at all because I know a lot of women who love really peaty whiskeys yeah. Including in my own family. Yeah. Uh, you have um, people of people all over the world who might have only people in South America who might have focused on their own regional spirits like uh, cachaça and rum yeah. before are now trying whiskey and are trying it because they see it as upwardly mobile or as a step up from what they're the local stuff. Yeah. So it's, it's it's becoming more widespread. It's cool to like whiskey again. Yeah, I, I mean, that's what I was sort of coming, alluring to. Did you have this, I mean, I know red gin or pink gin is, is, is doing well in the States at the moment. Did you have that uh, renaissance of gin in the U.S. as well that we had here? We have it largely because you have people who are trying to make whiskeys who have to let their whiskey age. So they make gin to sell now. Yeah. And so they're flooding the market with it. Okay. I'm not a fan of pink gin. I'm sorry. Um, or pink vodka. Vodka sucks. Well, I mean, vodka, 
you know, went through a huge rise there and very quickly fell off as well. Um, I mean, hopefully that's not going to happen with whiskey. Whiskey has the depth to be able to because overcome that, I think. Here's the deal. Here's why. Whiskey has character to it. Yeah. Whiskey has history, heritage, and stories. Yeah. You can tell the story of John Jameson or John Power or the Murphy family mm -hmm. or the Teeling family. You can tell those stories about whiskey makers all over the world. You don't hear great stories in history about vodka makers. No. You no. don't have the romance of seeing the warehouses full of barrels of vodka. Yeah. And God help us if anybody ever sells a gummy bear flavored whiskey. But you see well, this is it. cream vodka and all that. Give me a break. The U.S. finally just changed its regulations to allow vodka to have some flavor for crying out loud. At least yeah. whiskey has flavor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, what do you make of these pre-made whiskey cocktails and, and essentially flavored whiskey? You know what? If it gets people to try them, I'm okay with it. Yeah. I still want to see the evidence that people are switching from flavored whiskeys and trading up to the real thing. Yeah. I'm not, I've not seen any evidence that that's actually happened anywhere other than anecdotal. But yeah. you know what? I got to admit, if I were sitting outside by the uh, big inflatable pool in the backyard and I had the chance to crack open an ice-cold whiskey cocktail in a can and sit in the pool and soak for a couple of hours, yeah, I might do that. I don't. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned... Like I can't, I hate to keep going back to a rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah. But whiskey ready to drink cocktails have been popular in Australia and New Zealand for decades. Sure. And if, as long as they're consumed responsibly, I'm, I'm okay with it. Yeah. It may not be my personal favorite or my personal favorite, but I have no problems with it. If you want to drink it, more power to you. Yeah. What's, what's the perception? now amongst the Americans of Irish whiskey. And and is that audience a particular, you know, was it, it's no longer the Irish diaspora that are drinking Irish whiskey. You know, obviously there's a huge population there, but what's their perception? Is it seen as a premium yeah. whiskey? Yeah. Are you kidding? You walk through the liquor store with me one day and look at the people buying not only Jameson, but buying the premium stuff, like the red breasts of the world. Yeah. Or the red spots and the or the spot whiskeys or the teeling higher end expressions. Those things don't hit the US market unless there's a market for them and they're going off the shelves. Sure. And people are buying them. People are taking it seriously. People like the taste of Irish whiskey. And some people prefer it to scotch or bourbon. I personally like them all. Yeah. But yeah, there's, I mean, there's, there doesn't need to be any inferiority complex here when it comes to Irish whiskey and its perception in the U.S. Yeah. I mean, the one thing that you do do really nicely is you do cover the whole span of, of, of whiskey. So, I mean, you, you cover your bourbons, you cover your scotch, you cover everything in terms of the, the whiskey space. Which podcasts get you the most interest? They all do. They all do because people want to learn about, I'm finding that people want to learn about whiskeys of all types. Yeah. Um, 
people who are interested in Irish whiskeys are naturally going to gravitate to those. The bourbon fans are going to gravitate to theirs. But then they get I get emails saying, you know, I didn't know about this whiskey before from such and such country. Yeah. And wow. And so I went I went in and found some. I've gotten that because we've reviewed recently some Swedish and Icelandic whiskeys and from other non-traditional whiskey making countries. Yeah. And people have said, you know what? I didn't know they made whiskey there, but I went online, found it, got a bottle and liked it. And I, I think that's one of the things. I think, I mean, if you try one whiskey, an Irish, you're far more likely to go and try a, a scotch or a bourbon or something else. Yeah. You're going to stay within the whiskey circle. Yeah, I don't have time to deal with rums and tequilas and all that other stuff. Just I'm, I have enough trouble just keeping up with whiskeys. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so it's it's as fast moving there as it is here. What Irish whiskies have caught your eye? What new just in terms of new distilleries and what they're doing? What ones have caught your eye as being innovative or producing exceptional quality? Or is it too early to say? I like what the Blackwater guys have done with the. Uh... Red Feather, I believe. Um, red Velvet. Red Velvet, yeah. You, you know the one I'm talking about. Yeah. Peter Mulryan and his colleagues have done. Yeah. Um, I like that one. Um, right now, we're still at the point where a lot of these whiskeys are finished. Yeah. From somebody else's original distal, usually Cooley or somebody like that. I love what Louise McWayne is doing with Chapel Gate and yeah. the J.J. Corey whiskeys. Mm -hmm. um, I think she is doing absolutely amazing stuff with those. Yeah. Um, I like what the Glendalock guys have done with using Irish oak and following in that trend that uh, Irish distillers started with the Dagwaylock yeah. expressions a couple of years ago. Lambay is doing some interesting stuff. Yeah. And I mentioned Clonakilty earlier. They're doing some really cool things too. Uh, yeah. I can't wait to see this, the juice that comes out of Dublin Liberty's distillery. Well, sure. has a great reputation and I can't wait to see what that stuff tastes like when it's aged and mature. Yeah. Same thing with Lyons. I love the look of the Pierce Lyons distillery. Yeah. It's a beautiful, like it's it. unusual. And the whiskeys they made before Dr. Lyons passed were good. I yeah. can't wait to taste what their stuff get, tastes like as it gets older. Yeah. So I just got a correction here. It's velvet cap. Velvet cap. That's no, the, I got it wrong as well. Yeah. Even though we tried it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I just thank you. Whoever did that. Thank you for correcting. That's Aiden. Yeah. Uh, you know where I was going with that. I just. Yeah. Been, I don't know why I said red velvet. But, but since we had Peter on our webcast and I'd tasted it and I, I knew there was velvet in there and red and I always get red velvet, red spot mixed up, uh, black velvet, Canadian whiskey, velvet. Yeah. Yes. That's the one. Yeah. I mean, it's it's going to be, I think, five, ten years before we really see what all these new distilleries have to offer. Uh, yeah. What do you make of the the explosion in the number of distilleries happening here? I mean, we're up to thirty-one. The other one I want but, to credit is Waterford. I have not tasted the bottled the Pilgrimage. Okay, the Pilgrimage I, have I haven't tried yet yeah. either. But I I can't wait to see what they've done because I know what they're doing with the terroir experiments and the, uh, the different barley from different farms. I want to taste multiple whiskeys from them, from multiple farms, and see if it really is the case. Yeah. I suspect it might be, but you never know. But yeah. as for the explosion of distilleries, you got to remember, back at the peak 100 years ago, 
or more ago, there were more than a hundred Irish distilleries. Sure. Yeah. So I don't think we've only scratched the surface. I just hope all of them are able to make it financially through yeah. things like this pandemic and with the economy the way it is. I hope we don't see a crash that some of these guys don't make it through. But look, if you open 30 restaurants, 10 of them will succeed as well. It's not unique to whiskey. Right. But a restaurant is a short-term proposition. Sure. If you open a restaurant, look at all the restaurants we see by high-end chefs that are open for a year or two or three years, get yeah. their reputations, and then close because the chef wants to try something different. Yeah. Whiskey, you have to make a long-term investment in it. Yeah. And you have to be prepared to lay stuff down that you're not going to be the one who bottles it. Yeah. That your successors, whether you sell the place or whether you pass it on to your kids, they're going to be the ones that bottle it. So you can't take that short-term view when it comes to whiskey that you can with a restaurant. Yeah. And that's where I'm worried about some of these folks being able to make it. Yeah. I mean, I think there are some that are funded well enough to see the long-term and obviously losing the tourism sector and the visitor sector is a huge impact to some of these. And I just hope they can get through it. I'm sure, I'm sure they will. The governments are doing all they can as well to yeah, that, help them and support them. If they'd quit putting all the restrictions on these little small visitor centers, yeah. the public health folks did in the public health law last year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you me to tell your government what to do, but that was a dumb thing. Yeah. It's not the only one, but uh, yeah. I understand um, you protect public health more than anything, but let's be realistic about it and let's No, I mean, you can't uh, take with the one hand and give with the other or, or vice versa. Yeah. You know, so you've, you've tried, I'm sure, thousands of whiskey, and I, I see you do a lot of reviews. Give me your top three whiskeys of all time. Can't do it. Haven't tasted possible. <laughs> I will tell you this much, Sergios. Um, the website right now has my tasting notes for 2,924 whiskeys. Yeah. Since, so uh, I guess over the last 10, 12 years or so. There are eight of them, I believe, that I've scored 98 points, which is yeah. the highest score I've ever given. And those I can tell, those, those I would have to say would be, those, those are the best of the best because I've never given a score higher than 98. Sure. But there are whiskeys I haven't tasted. I mean, does a hundred exist? I'm sorry. Does a hundred exist? I hope so. Otherwise I'm wasting my time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, for me, I mean, I love to try whiskeys, but sometimes well, I enjoy an awful whiskey. Let me clarify this for a hundred, for me to give a whiskey a hundred. Yeah. I would have to be willing to drink nothing but that whiskey for the rest of my life. Okay. I mean, it would have to be that good that I would say, you know what? Rest of this, pour it down the drain. I have found my whiskey. I will drink this exclusively for the rest of my life. I'm not there. Yeah. Well, it'll be a lost cause. I think if we ever found the one, it'll be mission accomplished and that's it. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the, well, actually, one question I did want to ask, I actually wanted to ask it earlier on. The, 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 the tables are turned here, but I mean, if you are sitting here in, in my seat now, interviewing yourself, what would be your first question? 
you already asked it. What the hell were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But no, I mean, I'm kidding. Yeah, that's pretty much it was what prompted you to do this in the first place? Yeah. I mean, I didn't do it to get a wall full of whiskey behind me. I mean, yeah. I, I did it because I wanted to learn about whiskey. The other reason I started the podcast was because I didn't know a lot. I knew a little bit from having followed it for a few years, but I knew there was a lot to learn. And I and as a journalist, I learned by talking to people and asking them questions. Yeah. yeah. And I figured if I have a podcast, I can ask everybody in whiskey these questions and maybe bring some other people along who are like me. And that's why I did it. I mean, I think John Teeling was uh, mentioned last week. One of the great ways for him to learn was to actually teach. Yeah. You know, and uh, what's the community like there? Uh, are they tightly bounded? Are they friendly? Do they share information? Do they socialize? Are How you the... here in the States? or Yeah, in the States. Specific? Well, yeah. I mean, we have whiskey clubs popping up all over the place. Yeah. And I think that's great. We honor one each month on the show. But I think the whiskey community is out there. I mean, I'm fortunate in that if I put out word that I'm going to be in such and such a city, mm -hmm. pretty much anywhere in the world, if I've got to travel somewhere, if I say I'm going to be in San Francisco and I've got a six-hour airport layover before I fly off to someplace, yeah. is there a whiskey bar near the airport and does anybody want to meet me for a drink? I can probably find somebody who will come join me. Yeah. But oh, – sure. I'm not sure that's the case for the average person. And I got to admit, I'm really fortunate in that regard. But yeah. I think we are seeing whiskey communities pop up. We are seeing local whiskey events popping up. And I think that's happening all over the place. And I just yeah. hope we're able to continue to do that once we get through this pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what do you make of all these virtual tastings and these online festivals and these kind of events? It beats not having them. I'll tell you that much. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's not the same as being able to get together with our friends in person. Yeah. But to be able to connect safely, healthy, and in a way that still allows us to taste, enjoy, and share information and friendship and fellowship while not sharing the virus yeah. is a good thing. Yeah. It's but, not perfect, but it's the next best thing. Yeah. I mean, somebody doesn't somebody doesn't become successful at what they're doing unless they have a, a real passion for it, and I think that shows very clearly with you. But I'm just too stubborn to give up. Well, there's that as well. I mean, you have to be stubborn, I guess, to have 15 years. But it's the longest I've ever had. I've never worked. This is twice as long as I've ever held any other radio or TV job in my entire career. Yeah, believe it or not. What is what does whiskey mean to you? It means a lot of things. Yeah. It means the ability. It means it's one. It's the drink itself. It's the passion that goes into making it from the farmer who grows the grains, who doesn't make a lot of money from it, but does it because that's what they do and that's their life. Yeah. To the folks that work at the distilleries who may not make a lot of money from it, 
but that's their life. They put their essence into it. They put their personalities into that whiskey. Yeah. All the way down to the retailer or the bartender. It's the stories. Yeah. Where else are you going to get a chance to, uh, how many businesses do you know where you've got people like, for instance, uh, Fred No and Freddie No at Jim Beam now, who are the seventh and eighth generations of their families involved yeah. with Beam and now Beam Suntory. Same thing with the Samuels family at Maker's Mark. Uh, same thing with the descendants of the Jamesons and the Murphys, who are still around and still have a little bit of a peripheral involvement. Yeah. With IDL, uh, when you have distillery folks around Scotland, you can still go back and talk to these folks. You can see the places where history was made. Yeah. One thing, here, here's the way I explain this a lot, the passion behind whiskey. A lot of folks probably use a certain brand of laundry detergent or toothpaste. It's what you grew up using and you use it all the time and you don't change, it's your go-to. You go to the store, pull it down off the shelf because that's what you do, that's what your parents did. You, you've been buying that brand for years. But when's the last time you ever went to that toothpaste factory or the laundry detergent factory for a tour, let alone to have the plant manager sign a bottle of it for you, yeah. or go to a toothpaste or laundry detergent festival? That's the kind of passion that whiskey inspires. That's what it is to me. You could be onto something, though, with the uh, toothpaste uh, Don't festival. Don't any ideas. <laughs> no. We're just a bunch of dentists complaining about eating candy all the time. Yeah. Anyway, who's been your – you've obviously had hundreds of people on the show over the years. Who has been – well, firstly, what makes a fantastic guest and – who has been the person that you have enjoyed interviewing most? And there are horrible the questions, question, I know. But The first question, then the second. Yeah. Because the first question, what makes an, a great guest is a person who has opinions and isn't afraid to share them. Yeah. Whether they may not always be those of that person's employer or not. Um, that said, uh, favorite guests. I, I would hesitate to name a favorite guest because we've had so many that I'd love to talk to. Yeah. Uh, the folks that I would love to, the folks that I've, the interviews that I, stand out to me are with people who are no longer here. Folks like Anthony Bourdain, the chef, right. um, the late great Elmer T. Lee of Buffalo Trace, and before that, the uh, George T. Stagg Distillery, the guy who created Blanton's bourbon. Uh, folks like Parker Bean, who was on the very first episode of Whiskey Cast along with the, the great Jim Swan. Wow. And... I committed a rookie mistake in my first interview with Parker for that very first episode because they had just released at Heaven Hill the Bernheim Wheat Whiskey, and I asked him about the mash bill for it. And he just looked at me and raised an eyebrow because it wasn't all wheat. It's, it was a straight wheat whiskey, 51%. Yeah. 
But you don't ask distillers in Kentucky about the specifics behind their mash bills. I learned that lesson real quick. Yeah, I picked that one as well. Like that who are no longer with us that really sort of stand out. Dave Pickerel. Uh, the late, great Dave Pickerel, because I could ask Dave about anything when it came to distilling, and he knew the answer. Yeah. He was my go-to. If I had a question saying, how does this work? And Okay, why does this do this when you distill? I could go to Dave and he'd have the answer. Yeah. Folks like that, those are the ones that stand out because I know I'll never get a chance to do that, do those interviews again. And that's what makes me sad. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me, on that note, if there were somebody from the past no longer with us, maybe 1800s or whatever, who would you have loved to interview? Oh, without a doubt. Booker, no. Really? Booker passed about a year before I started doing the show. And from everybody I've talked to that knew him, Booker was one of these larger-than-life personalities. And I would have loved to have talked, sat down over bourbons with Booker just to shoot the breeze. Yeah. That would have been cool. I would have loved to talk with Bessie Williamson from Lafroig about what it was like to be one of the few women running a distillery back then. Sure. During her time on Isla of all places. And folks like that. Um, yeah, I mean, everybody says, you want to talk to Friar John Core, you want to talk to John Jameson, you want to talk to uh, John Power, those folks. Yeah, I'd love to talk. I would have loved to have talked with them. Yeah. But I don't know if what they could tell me would be as relevant today. Yeah. Going forward, then, who is on your wish list that you haven't spoken to? I think you covered everybody. I don't, well, you know, I was trying to think. There are a few people I have not gotten to. Bob Delgarno is one of them. He was master. He was the McAllen's chief whiskey maker for years. Okay. And I must have put hundreds of dozens of requests in to do yeah. interviews with Bob over the years, and he turned down every single one of them. Does he not do them? He didn't want to do them. He didn't like doing interviews. Yeah. Uh, the one I had another person I would love to loved to interview was. Uh, the late Charlie Grant of William Grant and Sons, mm -hmm. who was the guy who really unleashed Glenfiddich on the world back in the 1960s. Yeah. And I put that request in a couple of years before he died and was told, well, Charlie's going to want the questions ahead of time. Well, I don't mm -hmm. do that. Um, as I pointed out, um, I have interviewed presidents of the United States and heads of state, and they don't get the questions in advance uh, I'm not giving him those. And they said, well, Charlie thinks he's more important than the president of the United States. He's going to want them. Right. He died okay. before we could do the interview. We never got there. Mm. Stuff like that. I, I had one question in from um, the queen of wine. I think she's in Australia. Um, and she was asking, what's your biggest achievement? And what are you most proud of having done? Ooh. That's a good question. And Mike Murray, yes, you would find a good whiskey bar. Well, depending on the traffic, you might find a bar 30 minutes from San, from San Francisco Airport. You'd certainly find at least a good retail shop, but I could take Bart into San Francisco downtown, and I know I could find a good whiskey bar. 
Um, but hmm, that I'm most proud of. Okay, we covered this on the show. Literally, one of our guests said this a couple of weeks ago, or last weekend. Mark Watson, who is the distiller and overseas maturation at the uh, new distillery in Edinburgh for Halewood. And he mentioned during the interview, completely unprompted, that several back in 2017, late 2016, he was working distilling gin up in northern Scotland right. and listening to Whiskey Cast. And he heard an interview that I did with Nancy Fraley, who is a top notch blender and consultant. And he said that interview prompted him on the very spot to change his entire focus for his career and decide that he was going to focus on making whiskey. Wow. And he turned around, went back to the distillery and started trying to blend whiskeys together. I've had at least three or four different people tell me over the years that they decided to get into the whiskey business and become distillers after listening to whiskey cast. Wow. And for me, that is a sign that maybe we did the right thing here. And by doing what we did, we changed some lives. Yeah. Because we helped people find their passion and it was enough for them to change their life. Yeah. Which reminds me of one of our readers of the magazine, Ashley Penny. I don't know if you know. He has gone through and watched and listened to every single one of your podcasts Within the space of a year, I think. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, so he's certainly a dedicated one. A dedicated fan. Look, Mark, uh, it's been a, a pleasure and an honor to have you. Um, the contribution you've made is, is, is immense, you know, across all the whiskies. And I think that's the, that's the remarkable thing. So you, across the wide span of whiskies and the longevity that you've had, I think is down to your authenticity and your passion uh, and generally your kindness as well. So thank you very much for being our guests. We hope to see this side of the Atlantic soon again. And certainly we'd love to hook up again. Actually, the first time we met, it reminds me the first time we met been quite envious. And I was only starting my whiskey journey then is. Yeah. You had magazine. Yes. Uh, it was even before that, I think, because I remember you were sitting down in the Maker's Hotel in Dublin, and I think it was at an ideal event, and you had your Sony Pro DC something recorder, which was, you know, state-of-the-art in my eyes. I was always interested in audio at the time, but I was saying, wow, that's a serious piece of equipment. So they must really know what they're doing. So, But, I mean, from then I've been kind of following you, and certainly over the last while. But I, I'm enjoying your show, your HD show in particular as well. I think that's another dimension. Um, but look, thank you very much. It'd be hugely influential. I, I think you are the gold standard by which anybody could be measured by. And uh, making me look blush. forward to listening to you many more years. And Slauncha. Slauncha. And you're making me blush here. Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> thank you very much. Good evening. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Well, that was, I hope you found that as enjoyable as I did. It was brilliant to speak to, to Mark. He's a 
a gentleman and really interesting to see his side of the of the podcasting and whiskey business. And next week we have another good show lined up. Uh, I won't spoil the surprise yet, but she will be with us to, on Wednesday at half past seven. And we hope it's going to be another show. Of course, this will be going onto our YouTube station. Uh, if you've enjoyed this, please subscribe. It helps us uh, keep the show going. And if you have any interest in suggesting guests that you'd like to have, we'd love to. We'd love to hear what they are. Thanks very much for your time. If you have any questions, of course, please send them to us or info at irishwhiskeymagazine.com. And uh, thank you very much for being a guest again this week and hope to hear from you and see you next week. Good evening. Thank you.